I'd like to say a few things this evening <clears throat> in praise of inquiry. We've been using that word a bit in the discussion groups. And to talk about inquiry is to talk also about learning, understanding, the betrayal of understanding. Before um, we go into it, just want to say that you've all been remarkably quiet and steady. Um, we went through all the sheets yesterday of the interview papers, and a very large number of you are here for the first time, and uh, it's the first time you've sat for so long, and been quiet for so long, etc. And uh, in my own experience, it's unusual for, for there to be so much stillness. Now, I don't know what's going on inside of you. I have some degree, but it's, you're doing a very good job, a very good impersonation. So... And I'll settle for that. Uh, This morning, uh, I don't know if you can remember back that far. Remember a few thousand years ago? There was one point where one person coughed, and then a second person coughed, and then there was another cough in the back of the room, and then a third. Does anyone remember that? Was it only... Uh, The room was just... Filled with coughing. I thought there was some secret signal system going on. (laughs) And at one point, I mean, I'm glad I didn't, but I was tempted to say, uh, mixing it with loving kindness, of course, why don't we all just cough in unison and, and, and just get it over with? Just get it out of our system and settle down. And so I thought that it's going to be an interesting three days. But uh, things did settle down. I'd um, like to ask you to relate to whatever is being said in a somewhat more active way than perhaps you'd like to. Um, we've all worked hard today and this can be seen or experienced as a kind of uh, break, entertainment period, you know, a short, not a very good one, but a short movie, uh, where you just take it easy and hear a few phrases, perhaps a few Buddhist terms and some encouragement. And you're here, but in a very, very low-key way, just refueling for you know, more sitting and walking after this. I'd like to ask you to try to go into your reserve gas tank and bring the same quality of alertness to what we're doing now, which at the beginning will be mainly me speaking, but then an opportunity for us to all talk, I mean, whoever wants to, to give it your best effort. This is not inferior to sitting. It's also not superior to sitting. It's just what we're doing next. So this is our life right now. So it would be nice if there's some quality in it. That's all. Okay. Um, Inquiry. Supposedly Socrates said that a life unexamined is not a life worth living. It's a pretty extreme statement. A lot of people would be uh, in bad shape. I'd like to talk a bit about the place of inquiry in this practice, and I know many of you are relatively new to Vipassana meditation. One part of it is more obvious, that is uh, calming down, steadying, developing concentration. And often, especially if we're doing a lot of thinking in our life, can be a relief just to pay attention to the breath, even if it's difficult. At least you're not being asked to think or examine or find out. 
just sit and follow this one thing and you feel a bit more relaxed. But that's only one aspect of the practice and it's meant to be balanced with inquiry. The real inquiry is fanciful without some level of steadiness, of stability of mind. But the kind of inquiry that I'm mainly pointing towards tonight is not intellectual, although that has its place as well. I'd like to suggest that we uh, talk about inquiry in very practical terms so that it enables us to understand the heart of what we're trying to do here, which is to understand in the service of freedom, to free ourselves from limitation, suffering, unsatisfactoriness in our life, When we think of learning and inquiry, understanding, one of the most obvious forms is one we've been exposed to a good deal of in the school system. That is where we accumulate a lot of information and then arrange it in various ways and use the intellect to do all kinds of wonderful things with the information. Perhaps you can call that knowledge as a form of learning. And it's it's something we accumulate. If we were doing a lot of that, you would have spiral notebooks. You'd be filling the spiral notebooks up. But notice there are no spiral notebooks. I hope not. Spiral tape recorders instead. But anyway, that's not for you to accumulate. Another kind of learning is learning from experience. And we've all heard people talk that way. It's, uh, It's one way to gain some understanding. We do something in life. We have a certain experience. And then that experience is itself a guide to future action. The heart of the kind of inquiry and understanding that I'm pointing to tonight, I'd like to try to point to, uh, goes beyond that too. In other words, it's different Uh, Both are valuable, but they're different from what is being suggested. The kind of learning or inquiry is a kind that is not not accumulated. So you can accumulate information, technical information, knowledge. You can accumulate experience. And then that experience is what you see reality through. And if we've had some interesting experiences, it may be a reasonably good guide through for future action. But because it happened in the past, it may not be relevant to what's happening right in the moment. So even that kind of experience, as valuable as it is, um, is not what I'm talking about. But it's more a direct perception, an understanding, a standing under. It's intimate. And although words play a part, uh, essentially it's nonverbal. It's not accumulated in that what it is that we learned is is valuable only in that moment, and then it's obsolete. We don't really file it away. It's directly experienced, and that's its value. And often the experience itself is a form of intelligence, which directs action in a skillful, humane way. Often it's not that it leads to something else. It is it. The seeing and the doing are, are so close or almost identical that we know what to do when the mind is very clear. So it's standing under. It's... Um, absorbing a fact or something that is, that just is. And to do that, you have to really be simple and open and interested 
and deal with all kinds of barriers to that, like fear, like thinking that you know. And so it takes somewhat of the childlike quality where you're not embarrassed to admit that you don't know, as children are not, until they learn how to be embarrassed. If they have a question, there's a restlessness because there's something they don't know and they want to know. And there's no embarrassment at all. It's just straightforward. I don't know. What, what do I do? What is this? But we're very strategic in our questioning because images are at stake, etc. Adulthood. Let me be concrete. For me, the practice um, includes an enormous amount of attention to daily life. What, what is called daily life, really, it's all daily life. I mean, this is daily life. There's no place to get away from daily life. But that's one term that's used for, um, let's say, what we've just come from. And all spiritual paths that are worthy of that name are comprehensive. They have to do with our whole life. And so I would suggest that the foundation, one way to look at, a, to see a foundation, has to do with the body and with personal integrity. Now, the body is usually not talked about much in Vipassana circles. Because what I'm talking about now is not its impermanence, or is using the body as a field to develop wisdom from, seeing it as something else that's impermanent, transient, and all that flows from that. There's no question that Vipassana meditation is directed towards the body from that angle. And you've already seen, we, we pay attention to the body quite a bit, but not on its own terms so much. What I'm talking about now is much more commonsensical. That is, the body has needs. It has a certain intelligence. It needs a certain amount of rest, a certain amount of water, a certain amount of air, nutrition. It has to learn how to move itself or it creates problems. If these are done reasonably well, there's a fairly adequate amount of energy that the, the mind can count on, that the mind can be based on. If these are violated, we're forever tripping up over ourselves. Now, for a while it's puzzled me why there's been such a disregard of the whole notion of health in Vipassana. And since there's so much attention to the body, and I think it has a lot to do with the, the rather selective way in which the body is viewed as a field of impermanence, as a field of suffering, but not in its own right. Also, if you read the ancient texts, there's clearly a concern with attachment to the body, which sounds reasonable. It certainly is for me. And a, a real concern, almost a fear, that if we start to take the body too seriously, we'll get attached to it, there'll be vanity, uh, indulgence, and we'll get lost in it, and, and all the spiritual goals will be the casualty. It's not unique to Buddhism. A lot of religions seem to have mixed emotions about the body in terms of sexuality, in terms of care of the body, but it's not universal either. Um, but if you read the ancient, in ancient times, at the times of the Buddha, uh, I can only imaginatively recreate what uh, I sense went on there. The diet was superior to what we had. In India was a very prosperous country. The soil was probably what we would call organic and very fertile. So that means the the food had real nourishment. People walked a lot. There was a lot of exercise. Water was pure and clean. Air was clean. Uh, the rules set up in the community uh, were very healthy guidelines to not overeat. 
And so even without being self-conscious, I think that they had a, he- a healthier life than we do. We have to invent all kinds of new you know, holistic health and new stores and magazines and everything to kind of uh, remind us about this and compensate with uh, food supplements for what's lacking in food. So it, I wouldn't be surprised if the overall health of the yogis at that time was at a high level just naturally, just by the, the kind of life that was lived, vigorous, physically, etc. But that isn't our situation. We're more sedentary uh, in the air and water. Food has all been uh, damaged severely. So what I'd like to suggest is that inquiry, one way in which inquiry, that what we've been learning, how to pay attention, can be very useful and in the service of spiritual ends is by allowing that awareness to work in your life. And some of that was suggested in just a few comments about eating. If you eat and pay attention, that is, as you're eating, allow yourself to register, allow the body to be heard. The body will give off signals in terms of sensations as to how food is being received, what kinds of food it likes, what kinds of food it doesn't like, what's heavy, what's an irritant. Now, sometimes, as we know, the taste and the consequences of that which we've eaten because of taste are not aligned. And so we'll eat things uh, that taste good or because we have good ideas about them. And then we pay for it later. If you start to pay attention while you're eating, you can learn from the body. This is inquiry to me. The body will teach you in an ongoing way. It will give you guidelines. Not that, it, that you can't use uh, professional help and read. That, that's wonderful too. But as you get to know your own body, you can even make better use of, of professional help because you know what questions to ask. Uh, you can tell whether something that's been given to you is really helping you or just uh, all the magazines are saying it's good and so you start saying it's good, not even knowing if it's good. So you have an accurate index. As you start to eat, you can see the effect of food, different foods on the mind. And here we're starting to come closer, if some of you are getting bored, thinking, what is this, a gym class or something? Bear with me. It, has, it will eventually get to something that perhaps you're more interested in. When you start to pay attention to the kinds of food and the amount of food that you take in, and also pay attention to the qualities of mind that come about shortly thereafter, you'll see that there's a strong relationship. It's unmistakable. Certain kinds of foods agitate the mind and body, Certain kinds of foods make the mind heavy and dull. Certain kinds of foods contribute to the mind being energetic, help the nervous system be strong. You need a strong nervous system to meditate. We're releasing very subtle energy. Some years ago, a long time ago, I had a very wonderful Indian teacher named Shivananda Saraswati, who Um, was traveling by Greyhound bus around the United States and he was 85 years old and I had the good fortune to run into him and and I traveled with him for a number of months. I just went wherever he did and we stayed together and I just watched how he lived. And he gave me a great gift. What he taught me was that if you take reasonable care of the body, he wasn't a fanatic. Much of what he did was in range of probably everyone in this room. He said, if you take reasonable care of the body, you can have a relatively, and this is important for Buddhists to hear, a relatively painless old age. And that doesn't end there. The relatively painless old age is valuable because, as he put it, his deepest spiritual realizations came between the ages of 70 and currently, at age 85. And the reason it was possible is that he was in good shape, reasonably. He was traveling all night on Greyhound buses and went with very little sleep. 
and was very much of a contemplative, very much involved in the kinds of things we were doing. And so all it takes is a little bit of extra attention and care. It's not a question of being overindulged or vain or anything of that sort. It's just a slight bit more of attention. We're already developing the awareness. It's there. But it's more a matter of not betraying the understanding. That is, the information often comes to us. And time and time again, we betray the body. It's not limited to the body. I think we have a difficult time living our understanding, often. So I would encourage you to use this practice in a small way to start to examine how you live. Now we move from the body to personal integrity, and this is clearly very recognized in the Buddhist path, Sila, S-I-L-A, or sometimes translated as morality or um, virtue. But I think for our age, personal integrity, those other terms are a little bit quaint and smack of Sunday school. And it has to do with, once again, examining our life in the areas of speech. How do we use verbal energy? Lying, speaking in ways which create disharmony, wasting energy with what is sometimes called in the text, idle chatter. Harsh communication, which hurts people. Which has consequences. We hurt people, we get hurt back. We poison the atmosphere, psychological atmosphere. And so a certain amount of attention is merited to how we use verbal energy. It's just an application of what we're already doing. Begin to listen to what comes out of the mouth when these lips start flapping, the sounds start getting engineered into words. Just what are we doing? What's happening? Are we saying what we mean? What what is our intention when we say a certain thing? What are we trying to accomplish? What does it accomplish? What is the impact on others? We move from speech to areas of action, like not harming on many levels, but just in the most obvious way, uh, not harming, not killing, not stealing, and a difficult one. Uh, the use or not the misuse of sexual energy. The ancients were seemed to be mainly concerned with uh, protecting the marital situation. And in it, if you read the text, it's clear that women are seen as mischievous and uh, potentially dangerous for distracting men from going to enlightenment. So they have to be watched. But I think in this time period... Uh, Understanding sexual energy goes beyond marriage just by the way which many of us live and has to be looked at with fresh eyes. Just how do we use sexual energy if we can for a moment seeing it as something neutral? Perhaps on the one extreme, uh, asceticism, complete abstention from it. On the other extreme, um, Tremendous indulgence in it. Pornography. I'm not suggesting Tantra, which is also useful, I'm sure. I'm not trained in it, so I don't know it. But it's more in continuity with our ordinary practice. It's simply paying attention and learning from what happens. Absorbing the actuality of what happens Uh, in situations where sexual energy is involved. And with everything else, with the use of money, speech. So the inquiry is nonverbal attention 
And if you like, try this sometimes. Whenever you find yourself suffering or very unhappy, you can begin it with words, but eventually I don't think you'll need words. Just ask yourself, why am I suffering right now? And then listen. Don't try to think it out. Then just be still and let the suffering reveal itself. Sometimes it's very obvious. Very often I've found. The reason you're suffering, see that? It's fire. Oh, I see. It's hot. You put your hand in it and therefore you got burned. Oh, I see. A lot of the learning that can come in meditation is of that nature. Getting burned and understanding that you got burned. Okay, now here, the word understanding, I think, needs to be clarified a little. It could, it ranges from common sense understanding of that word understanding to what you might call meditative depth. Maybe we can make that a bit more clear. And this kind of depth can be directed towards anything. As the awareness becomes more sensitive, as we become more intimate with our own experience, it becomes harder and harder to do certain things. I don't know if any of you have noticed that. You've seen that. Uh, You can't do certain things. It's not that you have to use your will to not do them. It becomes so obvious that they're destructive and useless. And as a result, uninteresting. Awareness seems to have one function, perhaps, of setting things right. But that means that there's, what I'm talking about now, there's a certain clarity that has perhaps infinite depth. Whereas the same phenomena could be experienced in a deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper way as we become deeper. And so a small gesture can be seen for what it is. It could be quite cruel and cutting and we become incapable of doing it. Not because of any moral code, but because of understanding because we really experience what it does to us if we inflict it on someone and we see what it does to someone else, the person who's, who's been hurt by it. Same with diet. As the meditative depth becomes more established, uh, we're just more alive. We're more sensitive to what's happening, whatever it is. Okay, so these areas of personal integrity, and I would add, which is you probably won't find in too many in any Vipassana books, but which I feel is useful in that if we don't pay attention to the body, at least to some degree, it only boomerangs. We wind up spending all our time dealing with our sickness. And that's not the point at all. If the body is reasonably cared for, if our personal life is reasonably in order, there's a foundation and the possibility for insight, for understanding, for wisdom. If those realms are not taken care of, can you see how no matter, you can sit for two million years, how nothing's going to happen? Because we keep undoing everything that we're accomplishing in quotes in the sitting meditation, which we uh, feature. It's the star of the show, sitting. And so the ancient Buddhist texts are very clear on that, that as the uh, personal integrity is the ground on which the yogi stands. If personal integrity is problematic, you can just imagine. I remember one time uh, someone at a Zen center that I used to practice at was involved in all kinds of illegal things. He was wanted by the police. He was Canadian, was concerned about being in this country illegally. Uh, I think he was dealing in dope. There were a whole bunch of things. And he was constantly worried and he couldn't understand why he had such a hard time following the breath. I mean, he fell off his cushion once. He was concerned about whether the police were going to break the door down any minute. How, how in the world is he going to follow the breath or do anything else? So, it's again common sense. It's something that, that it's not following an authority. It's not being good boys and good girls. In other words, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. This is not Sunday school I'm talking about. It's not um, following some absolute dictum from an external authority. 
It's more in the, in the realm of training rules, guidelines, pointers to actual awareness and experience which reveal to us the self-evident value of what it is we're doing. It's our responsibility to take these on if we feel that there's some sense to it. Say, for example, for example examining our speech. But then... I feel the real lasting development comes not from blindly or mechanically following a moral code. In other words, I won't lie out of will, but from understanding, from seeing what lying does, the cost of it to you and to others, so that you don't lie out of intelligence. It comes the ground out of which the end of lying comes, or at least minimizing it. It comes out of almost scientific lawfulness in the universe, you really, it's not a good way to live. It's not a a piety uh, to be preached. It makes sense. Okay, if these realms are in order, or reasonably in order, uh, the traditional progression is to move to areas of wisdom. with a strong foundation that is uh, a reasonable amount of energy, a life that's not overly complicated, we can then begin to look at issues like impermanence, like the unsatisfactoriness of human existence, like personal identity, what does it mean to be a human, the self, notions of that sort, which are... uh, at the core of Buddhist teaching and at a central in Vipassana work. Let's just take impermanence for a moment. <coughs> the Buddha pointed out that there were three characteristics basic to existence and one of them was impermanence. So that the marks by which existence could be recognized Just as, let's say, you have a friend, you can recognize them because there's something, their features are a certain way, which distinguishes them from other humans, other beings. One of the marks of existence is that it's transient, it keeps changing. No matter what level you look at, it's true. Whole civilizations, microscopic. Our mood in the last two minutes, you tell me, wherever we look, wherever we, and the looker itself. It's just an ocean of impermanence. Now, all cultures have known this. Probably, I, I mean, we could take a poll, but I'm pretty sure everyone in the room sees this, understands that uh, the most dramatic confirmation of this is that we're impermanent. Everyone in this room will die without exception. No exemptions on that one. No matter what, there's no way out of that one. But that's just part of a general process. Everything is appearing and disappearing at a staggering rate. And as our, well, if that seems true to you, if that's satisfactory to your intellect, you've read about it, no doubt, and we've all experienced it. It's all around us. And it can be interesting and it can have some influence in your life. But the kind of understanding that I'm talking about, the direct perception of impermanence, or let's say meditative depth, has to do with the concrete, tangible experience of actual moments of impermanence over an extended period of time. It's something like this. You see an in-breath. The in-breath has a beginning. It has an end. There's an out-breath, it has a beginning, it has an end. A thought suddenly comes into the mind and then it's gone. Your ankle hurts, then it doesn't hurt. You like being here, and suddenly that's over. It's like a cloud formation, it's gone. You don't like being here. And in the practice, the seeing, really, um, the best I can do is that you absorb that fact You absorb it. It's not simply seen sort of in a surface way, but it becomes part of you. It's like digesting. It's like chewing food. 
chewing something, assimilating it, it becomes part of your being. I would call that understanding. And that has perhaps an unlimited range of development so that the meditative life in, in terms of wisdom has to do regarding impermanence with a sustained openness to that process. Seeing it, feeling it, until the mind finally gets it. Oh, I see. It's all impermanent. Yeah, that's what the Buddha's been trying to tell us for the last 20 years. But I understood that 20 years ago. But did you? Is there any difference between reading a very wonderful text about it or having some speaker talk about it? And when you personally, in a very intimate way, start to experience moment after moment, particularly as the mind becomes more still, that there's nothing solid to hold on to, including that which wants to do the holding. Now, that, it seems, that is understanding that has real power to transform a person. And so now, we're moving with inquiry. We're looking and trying to understand, what is this? What is this? Whatever it is, a feeling, a thought, a sound that just ended. I just heard. And then that can be applied and moved. We move to the area of unsatisfactoriness that's very uh, that's dealt with in a very comprehensive way in Buddhist teaching. Very briefly, because I think the main point is uh, the kind of understanding that I'm talking about. It's intimate and personal. So I'll be brief about the remaining two um, features of existence, because I'd really like to hear if there's anything on your mind. The unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha, some of you have seen that word. It's sometimes called suffering, but it's broader than suffering. It includes suffering, like physical pain, sickness, emotional pain. But it also includes more subtle um, kinds of dissatisfactoriness or unsatisfactoriness in life. Like that everything is changing. Just that alone, that no matter what it is, it keeps changing. Or the very fragile and unknown, we know we're going to die, but we don't know when. A kind of existential uh, problem that all humans have. No matter, we can be totally psychoanalyzed and eat all that good food I talked about and do lots of yoga and deep breathing and get certified by all kinds of teachers. And yet there still remains that fact we're going to die, each one of us. We know it and we don't know when. Is that a bad joke that's being played on us? The animals are going to die, but they don't know about it. I don't think. I don't know. And it's called a noble truth of suffering. And one of the reasons I think that it is uh, a noble truth is that it has to do with this understanding of suffering. That is, to really be willing to face your own suffering, my own suffering, all of us, every creature, to really be willing to inquire into that openly is ennobling. To do that is ennobling. Now, our tendency is to run away from it, to compensate, to do all kinds of things. But to turn, to shift the direction so that you face it squarely. Now, if you can backtrack, what we've been doing is a momentum picking up. If we're doing some work with our body and having a reasonable amount of energy and our uh, personal integrity is starting to become less complicated, less an issue, it's not problematic. That means there's more energy available, it's coherent. Perhaps it can be directed towards examining issues which take a lot of energy. One definition of the religious mind is a mind that aggregates energy for the purposes of ascertaining ultimate significance of life. In other words, bringing, collecting that energy 
for that ultimate inquiry is what it means to be here in the first place, to be human. And so we need all the help that we can get. Everything going in the same direction to, pick, to develop a momentum. If we can look at our suffering, it's ennobling. Personally, I have found, it's ennobling in a way that I don't think anything else can be. I don't think a therapist can give it to us or a lover or a husband or a wife or the Buddha. Uh, when a human being faces themselves, and no matter how difficult it may be, whatever it is that you'd rather not face, but if you do it and gently and slowly begin to learn what it is, why it's there, what your possibilities are, even if perhaps there are no possibilities or very few, somehow you come away from it feeling deeper or more full as a human being. Whereas every time we dodge and hide and conceal and play games, it's demeaning. We don't allow ourselves to feel how demeaning it is much of the time, but from time to time it surfaces. And we can hardly stand it. Or is that just me? And then we move on to the third aspect of existence, and the one that is the most confusing for, for most of us no self, anatta, which doesn't mean that we're a zero. But what is suggested is that there isn't a, an inherent self. There isn't an inherent identity that you can point to and say, there I am. So inquiry on that level is a direct looking at personal identity. What is a self? This is not a rarefied, esoteric, uh, only reserved for philosophy seminars kind of question. It couldn't be more practical. And we don't treat it that way. We try to improve the self. There's an enormous amount of self-improvement going on in our society right now. But, But that which is trying to improve itself is the problem. And yet a certain level of self-improvement is needed to go on with this kind of inquiry because it's arduous. In my own case, I find it, of the three, the most interesting now, for a number of years impermanence is what held my attention a lot. But now it's the no-self, the anatta. And things changed for me a few years ago regarding it when I became honest about it. In a moment, a rare moment of honesty, I was able to admit that I don't care if the Buddha said this and all the books say it. I feel that there's a coherent, damn it, I am a self. I mean, just the ego felt like it was a rock. And it felt that I don't care. They're all wrong. That's just stupid. What do you mean there's no self? I'm filled with myself. And somehow, uh, getting that out of my system uh, brought me to just be looking at that, looking at the seeming solidity, the seeming uh, coherence, homogeneity of it, of this entity. And of course, it didn't stand the test. You know, it just, as soon as I could allow that to be admitted, then it was possible for the other to come in. Uh, that it was just a bunch of thoughts and feelings, often contradictory, inconsistent, flying by a mile a minute, and I couldn't, whatever it was, it was, I couldn't hold on to it. And I started to see the mind uh, endlessly describing itself. I'm a this or I'm a that, almost feverishly, you know, they're just seizing upon anything to, as a basis for, I'm this, I'm that, almost an addiction. Uh, as it needed to always make up something about itself. Why was it working so hard? What was it trying to prove? I mean, if it was really so solid, what's all the fuss? Why is it so concerned about the slightest 
You know, someone doesn't say hi to you and the whole day is destroyed. Why, we, why is it so fragile? Okay. Um, did any of you learn anything so far in the last couple of days? of this order, of kind of direct, intimate, concrete, tangible, palpable, very practical. You brought it, you saw it, you put your hand in the fire, you got burned. I neglected one, excuse me, let me backtrack, just to put it on our minds, the betrayal of understanding. I've been talking about understanding. Very often, we understand things and it seems we don't live our understanding. And that perhaps is one of the most important areas of inquiry. That is to look at why don't I live what I know? For example, in the discussion groups today, and this is very common in meditative groups, people who say they value meditation, they've seen its value, love meditation, all of that, and yet are unable to really do it wholeheartedly, as wholeheartedly as they would like to, and are doing many other things which are not valued, which may even be destructive. In other words, there is understanding of that and an inability to to live that, to live the understanding, a kind of betrayal, self-betrayal, which we all seem to do, perhaps out of fear or the complications that um, understanding often leads to action that perhaps shatters ways of living that are been going on for quite a while. Anyway, just to close that off, have any of you learned anything? It's a serious question. Yes, you're going to have to speak up. Why? Good luck. Are you able to, could you share with us, say, the texture of that? I mean, was it really a, that moment? Was it really concrete? With the seeing of it, what was consciousness like right after that? Can you remember? Well, I felt uh, some uh, joyousness. Yes, exactly. That is one of the uh, most wonderful forms of motivation for us to do this practice. There's the joy of learning. Often the learning frees us. And when that starts to happen enough times, you'll want to meditate out of, on your own accord. It comes from inside. Uh, why not? It's just stupid not to. Joy is one of the real... real the joy of learning. It sounds very corny. Maybe there'll be a, a new center opening up, Joy of Learning Center. <laughs> but in my own case, that's been one of the most helpful, maybe the most helpful, even when it's something very ugly about myself, 
that I've seen. To really see it, really feel it. On the other side of it is joy. Yeah. I wish you'd say something about compassion. Um, the way you put it, it sounds like just a lot of drudgery. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, it's certainly hard work. Can you be genuinely compassionate if you don't understand yourself? Oh, yeah, I'd rather hear what you have to say. No, I would certainly add that to what I was saying. Uh, if that were absent, it would be very harsh. Yeah. Um, I find looking inside and, and finding all these, these faults and all the things that I could have done and, and should have done and, and um, should be and could be. And, and, and then using that and working with people... I work with older people, and and they tell me the same stories that I tell myself, that my friends tell themselves, that everybody tells themselves should could, uh, and I hear it from these people who've been uh, doing these numbers for 80 years, you know. Um, and lately, I, I found myself saying to people who I work with, uh, "You mean you're human?" <laughs> and um, that comes across in a compassionate way. Finding out that I'm human and everyone else is human equals compassion. Well, if you sit watching yourself for enough hours, it gets harder and harder to be hard on anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else? I just want to make sure that I understand you. Did you see something that was solid? It sounded to me a little bit as if you saw some form that was solid. See, the Buddhist approach doesn't allow us to have any fun. What? And those people will talk about, I found my true self, or, and then you just say, well, watch that true self a while. <laughs> and it turns out to um, decompose or become something else. Uh, that, at a certain point, that becomes the main practice, is seeing that you know, no matter where it is, no matter what you point to, you start to see it 
falling away. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I understand you a bit better now. Thank you. Yeah. Anyone else learn anything? Even it could be very, you know, humble, tiny. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm just I'm sitting here realizing realizing that what I thought I realized I wasn't realizing as well as I might. <laughs> I. Uh, <coughs> I really related to what you were saying earlier, but um, for a long time I felt that the the idea of impermanence and underlying dissatisfaction in life um, that I haven't had a great deal of difficulty relating to that. Mm-hmm. You know, in, that in my practice and out of my practice, in many instances, I see the impermanence and the uh, Dissatisfaction in my life, um, but I really, ha- I really, honestly have to say that I, <clears throat> I keep thinking there really is a real permanent me. And when I was speaking earlier today about experiencing a lot of physical pain and discomfort, right. thing, I uh, interspersed with the physical discomfort was a lot of anger and frustration about the physical discomfort. And interspersed with that was a lot of sexual fantasies coming up and a lot of ancient resentments and um, disappointments. And it's, you know, the sexual fantasies and disappointments and resentments that I think are part of the permanent self because as far back as I can look, mm-hmm. I've been dragging them up. And I think they're very closely related to, I mean, that aspect of myself is very closely related to physical discomfort and sometimes inability to you know, I think this discomfort is also impermanent, so why the hell is it leaving me now? Mm-hmm. You know? It's not impermanent quickly enough. Right. very closely interrelated I saw that as three separate areas. Anyone, anyone learn anything in a really humble, you know, really tiny thing like uh, drinking tea too hot and burning your tongue? Or there's, we're doing small actions here too. You know how small this is, but I've learned for the first time this is not. I have many, many places to hide. Mm-hmm. This, this is not. I've never done this kind of thing. Yeah, it's an intentional pressure cooker. You know, it's a detoxification. Uh, That's what it's about. And it's only Saturday. We have a ways to go yet. (laughs) Sure. In the small things that you said this morning, um, at breakfast, I felt a really strong need to go without dairy. So I made a conscious effort to not have dairy in the morning and I was thinking, well, I won't have dairy for the whole three days and I'll see, you know, what happens with my body and what the changes are. And then when lunch came, um, <laughs> I felt like that had changed and that, that awareness that I had in the morning wasn't necessarily something that was going to carry through. But fortunately, there wasn't any dairy. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes dairy makes me feel, and I only have that very small amount. So, 
from the awareness this morning to the... Mm-hmm. So the mind went through changes. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can close with advice that I got from, some of you know, a Zen master named Sansanim, Korean Zen master. In terms of all these minds that keep changing, he said, always try to keep the mind that decided to practice. <laughs> <laughs> And good luck to all of us. Why don't we do some walking? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.